Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. I have to tell you something. Uh, first of all, to all my Jewish friends, you know, because I grew up in a Jewish neighborhood, it was 85% Jewish. Actually, it was 90% Jewish, but they bargained with the census. And I want to say Happy Hanukkah. Now, I wasn't Jewish personally. I, I grew up in a, in a Christian development, as I say, and it always cracked me up because everyone in our neighborhood had lights. Everyone, you know, I mean, the Italian family had lights, and they overdid it all the time. And then the neighborhood right down the street, Woodcrest, had all these huge houses, and it was completely dark, except there was always one house. You sit there and see one house with lots of lights, and you know everybody said that Goyim was doing well because he was the only non-Jew in that neighborhood. So anyway, happy Hanukkah, guys, and uh, just have your good seven nights. And uh, my, my guest was shaking her head. Now, you, I know you grew up in the Valley, right? I grew up in Woodland Hills, yeah. Now, was there, was there I know, well, Woodland Hills is that big Christmas light thing, doesn't it? Or- oh, that's in um, College Acres. It's, okay. it's also part of uh, Woodland Hills. But no, we're on the other side of the boulevard south the boulevard and um yeah it was always a mix of like who had lights who didn't it was a mixed thing my parents would put up the lights and leave them on all year we were those people you were, those- it, they, we were those people and and then my mom would if we were like getting food delivered then she would turn them on and she'd be like oh it'll be easy for you we'll turn on your christmas lights in june you'll know the house and so then she became a realtor and she was looking at property and someone was like, can you believe those people have still have their Christmas lights on? It's so tacky. And so then she's like said to my dad, okay, we can't be this lazy every January. By like January 10th, you should take them down. Is that what you're feeling? I mean, because I, yeah. I sit there, well, we, we didn't get a tree this year because we're going back east. And oh, yeah. So, so Joanne went out and got a little uh, poinsettia so yeah. <laughs> sitting on the floor. Yeah. Sort of feeling. But yeah, I always felt like, you know, you see like in the neighborhood, I, lo- I live in Burbank and sometimes you're, you're pulling up and then you see like, on January 30th, like a tree and it has like no needles and it's like, just get rid of it already. I know. It's sad. That part's depressing. I like to get rid, well, like as a Catholic, it was always sort of like you keep it till little Christmas, which is January 6th with touch to do something with like the three Kings. I never really understood it. We didn't really follow it. But so a lot of people keep up all their stuff until January 6th, but whatever works for you. Who cares? Well, like- I do it on the day before we all go back to school. Like I want it done and like put away and like let's let's get our shit together it's january do you already have your tree did you buy it yet we have we got a fake one like 10 years ago and we do the fake which i like because i'm not scared that it's gonna like catch on fire and all the tree all the branches are strong enough to hold and like it would always depress me when you'd like put a heavy ornament on it and it would be too heavy for the (laughs) for the branch and um but I this year I had that it was a pre-lit fake Christmas tree. So this year was the year that half of them, like every other row, was out. See, that's the worst. Like we did it, we did it on our steps, and all of a sudden, and the thing now is also, well, you have the pre-lit, but when you get the lights, yeah, they're always confusing because they have two different ends, oh, and so... if you screw it up, all of a sudden you sit there and you go to plug it in, and it doesn't plug into it's the right so thing. It's so scary. It's and it's, it's terrifying. It's crazy. So now, now you grew up in the valley. Now, yes. As a kid, because mm-hmm. I know you went to, as a kid, did you want to do comedy? I mean, how did you? Because I mean, you're not only a you know a, a comedian, you're a, a best-selling author. Mm-hmm. And I mean, just how did uh, that all start? Well, um, I was the youngest of five, and I have kind of have an unusual. Not a lot of comedians could say this, but my parents like wanted me to be a stand-up. <laughs> they were really encouraging. They really always said I, how funny I was. And being the youngest of five, uh, my parents were both funny. They came from the advertising world. So they were both like creative, funny people in their own right. And then uh, my siblings were pretty hilarious themselves, but none of them pursued it. And then um, and I had I had a talent for impersonating people and in, in, imitating people, whether it be like a teacher or a friend or someone on TV or whatever. And so um, but I. I was, I didn't understand how strangers would find me funny. Like my music teacher at my all girl Catholic high school, after I was accepted to USC, he's like, I don't even know why you're going to college. You really should be a stand up. And which is like an appalling thing to say to someone especially after. Good, <laughs> especially USC is a, a very good school. It's not like you said, oh, you got accepted to DeVry. Go, go be yeah, a stand up. Now yeah. it's like, so it's, now what was he your. He just was like, I know that's what you should be doing, you know? And I've like since found him on Facebook and said, do you even remember telling me this, you know? Um, but I was like, well, I just don't understand, you know, how I, I was, I was, and I was afraid because growing up in LA, I knew actors, I knew kids, you know, we had, we actually were 
were child actors when we were little, but only my one sister really booked anything. And she booked a lot of commercials. And then my mom started to work and couldn't really make us on the auditions anymore. So I was like jaded about the business. I was like, no, if my parents are going to, you know, roughly pay a hundred thousand over four years for me to go to college, I want to be like running a business. I'm not going to be a waitress at 27. Like I was snotty about it because I was so realistic growing up here. So, um, but then once I, I got to SC, um, there were, this is how old I am, but the people that had agents, because there were a lot of like models and actors that were going to school at SC since we were near LA, they would have a pager. And if I saw someone with a pager, that would kind of like give me anxiety. Like I'm not pursuing what I should be pursuing and I'm not like using the gifts God gave me. And like, I just kind of, and and then I started to be known as being really funny. I was in high school too, but in college with my sorority sisters because I would reenact what happened on our big party night. So our big party night was Thursday night. So it was, became this thing like break, Friday breakfast with Heather. And like, it just became this not unofficial thing. And girls would become like running down to have breakfast. And they're like, did we miss, did we miss Heather? Like talking about the exchange with the betas or, you know, what, who got together with whom and what happened at the 90 bar and, and as I was getting close to graduating, I just was like, how do I make this a career where I, you know, and the same thing I used to feel. So then I got this awful job right out of school. Because what, was your, what was your major? My major was communications. And then halfway through communications, I came home and I told my parents, I'm like, I really should be in drama or film. But now I was so far along and it was so expensive and we didn't get financial aid or anything like that. And I was like, well, you know, my parents were like, if you want to switch, fine, but you've got to finish in four years. And so um, at that point, I kind of looked at it. And so I didn't. You could take 18 units for the same price. So then instead of doing 15 like everybody else, I would do 18. And those three extra would be an improv class or a character study class or like a Shakespeare theater class like I would, or an extra little film class. I would just try to take as much extra I could but still finish on time. But so here I'm in this communication class. And the communications department was not like this. It was really kind of stupid. I think it's gotten better. But it was like weird classes that I would be sitting going, this is so... I remember this one guy was teaching class interpersonal communications. He'd been married four times. I'm like, really? <laughs> really? That's so funny. I used to, When I used to record my show, there was a, a weight therapist. I guess that was her job in the uh-huh. studio. And she weighed like 80 pounds. And I'm thinking, how is she going to give people advice on eating and weight when you walk Clearly in? Clearly, she's like anorexic yeah, exactly. or effed up. So, um, so, so like any opportunity I could have to like make the most of the class. I remember I had to write a paper about some something and I chose rape and I wrote this paper on rape and then I'm like and now I will be doing a monologue <laughs> from the play extremities and I'm in this small classroom with literally like 30 people a, some frat guys some football players because it was kind of like an easy major so it wasn't this is what people took when they weren't that bright like or or what would happen to a lot of people is they go business and they couldn't handle the math and stuff so then you could do communications which is what i did and take like some marketing and some entrepreneurial like side classes so i do this whole thing like just like farrah fawcett in the movie like poking him in the uh fireplace and torturing her her rapist that she found and um and then i finished and i remember this guy raises his hand he's like I think you're in the wrong major. <laughs> I think you should be in drama. Look, well, I just want to make, I just wanted to use every opportunity I could to be on stage, you know, and like perform. And um, so then shortly after that, I'd got this job. Like the people came to do the job fair and I just didn't want to have to move home. And I wanted to make enough that I could like live with my friends in Brentwood and live in our little apartment and like have a life and find somebody to get married. Like I just was like, oh, you know, let's just. So I got this job as assistant buyer at Robinson's May, which then all just got merged into Macy's. But at the time it was that, and it was not fun. It was not like I was picking out fashions. It was like I had to learn this computer program, and and it was just really just corporate and lame. And it took a long time for them to fire me because I think it was like this program where you like had to give someone so many chances. I don't know. And at one point, 
I had it. My dad had always given me a subscription to People Magazine, and I loved People Magazine. And I would go off to lunch by myself, and I'd read People Magazine, and I'd be like, "I won't. I hope one day I have a job that involves reading this magazine." And eventually, I did with Chelsea lately, and now I do a podcast that's all about like gossip and pop culture and stuff. But I um. I finally uh, had a friend who threw down a learning annex magazine and said, um, you should you should take this class on how to be a stand-up. I took that class in Philadelphia, and mm-hmm. my teachers were Brian McKim and Tracy Skeen. And I remember it was years ago. Yeah. I, I took that because I was the same way. I was at the college, and I and I started working out of the Philadelphia circuit from that. So see, we, we had the same well, so th- Okay, this was my experience, and then I went here. So mine was, it was a one-night class, okay? And I went, and it was at like the Radisson I don't even know if it's still there. The Radisson in Santa Monica. And I drove my car there. It's like a Tuesday night or something. And this woman, her name was Judy Brown. There was a couple Judy Browns. This is a different Judy Brown than the one that everyone associates with like the Aspen Comedy Festival. So this Judy Brown, she um, kind of reminded me of the, of the woman in Poltergeist, the one that's like, this house is clean. She was like little and whatever. So. She kind of explains, you know, because I don't really remember, but I just remember at the end, everybody had, if you wanted to, you could get up and do something funny. So re- just recently, I'd gone to karaoke for the first time, and I'm like 21 at the time, or maybe I'm, no, I'm 22, okay? So I go, and I imitate this Asian guy singing like a hip song at karaoke, and all these strangers laughed, and I was like, okay. I understand now, you know, and so, so then when I left, you know, when I was leaving, it was sort of like her commercial to get people to buy like the six week course. She's like, well, I'm starting a new course and at the end of the course, at the end of six weeks for 350 or whatever it costs, you will get to perform at the Santa Monica Improv in like their smaller room, which again, Santa Monica doesn't involve, doesn't exist anymore, but there was like a smaller upstairs room on and off night, like a little recital basically and invite your friends and family. And I was like, I am doing this. This is a deadline and I I have to do it. Like, and I remember I drove off the lot in my Toyota Celica and I was like, this is it. My life has changed. I am going to do this and, and I can do this. And so I took the class and the class was hard. Like I kind of would dread going into the class, but it was a discipline in that every week I had to kind of write bits, forced to say them in front of people get other people's suggestions as well as hers and then kind of like put it together. And of course, by the time the thing came, some people just were like, I can't do it. I'm not doing it or I'll buy another course or something. I'm like, no, I'm doing it. And what was great is that since I was from LA, I had all these friends and family that were, had been like dying for this day to come. So they were really supportive. So, you know, we taped it and, and it was a pretty great first time experience. Like, and so when people say, oh, you can't learn from a comedy class, you can't learn comedy from a comedy class, I disagree. Like I went through a whole program at the Groundlings, which is classes. And I think that, yes, if no one's told you you're funny and you've never made anyone laugh at a cocktail party or a slumber party or whatever, I don't think it's the career for you. But if it helps you and, and you meet people, especially when you're smart to go out like on open mic nights, you kind of want to have like friends, you know, that can help you and go with you and help you tag jokes. And, and, um, so in that, in that way, I think it, it was really, really helpful. She wasn't the greatest teacher, no offense to her, but you know, but the, the discipline of it was I, good. I agree with you on that. With yeah. The fact that I, I think honestly, either you're funny or you're not. Right. And I, yes. and I, I'm a firm believer, but what I was, when I went there, I was out of college. I didn't know where to go in Philadelphia. Yeah. And it was six weeks. Same thing. They sat there and you wrote your act and at the end we yeah. all got to go up the comedy factory outlet which was this great club yeah but yeah so we sat there a, a class will help you unless you're not funny and then right. nothing's going to help you but I, I agree the same way i said i always sit there and people are like oh your comedy class. i said well you know what i took a comedy class and it, yeah it got me because i had no idea we get out of college and especially yeah back then you know i'm sitting there going well you know my mom saw it and she goes take this class and so i said okay so i went into philly it was, it was 10 minutes away right and you went and it was mine was six weeks but it was like 80 bucks it was cheap yeah and it's same thing and uh, same thing happened people drop oh you know what i found out later she didn't charge everyone 350 she charged me more no because might have been that celica yeah it's sexy and i had a job i had like a full-on job you know that paid i wasn't like a waitress or something so um 
Well, I would have paid 600. I was so excited to just make it that I do this thing that I know I'm supposed to be doing, you know? Now, after you did the first night and you had a great set, what did, did was your second set good or what how did you start that path because i know you went to the groundlings you said mm-hmm. but but how did you start getting on stage more and were you did you feel confident at, when it wasn't all your friends and family um yeah i did but i i you know well i continued with the class i took it like once or twice more so i would be able to get do those were little gigs i could count on because she would put anybody that was in the class on and then i just started to get word of mouth of like oh this show and this show and then people would be like would put me on it because i was decent but also i was a bringer i could bring the people i could because i lived here and um and I wanted, if someone was going to put me up, I wanted there to be an audience and I wanted it to be a smart, normal audience. And my friends liked it. You know, sometimes it was, I would have guilt about how shitty the show was and how awful the people were, but you know, it was good. And then, and then it was always very nice not to bring anybody like that's more of a relief to me. I didn't want to bring them. It's exhausting calling back and forth. Are you coming? This is where you park, blah, blah, blah. Now the person's canceling. Like, oh my God, I taped my special here in North Hollywood um, at the El Portal, and it turned out great. You can see it on Netflix and Showtime. I don't mean to brag, Heather McDonald. But when I got the deal, they kind of were like, well, you know, what do you, where do you want to do it? And, you know, it'd be easier if we did it in L.A. because of the cameraman and everything. And I'm like, yeah, I'm 818 till I die. Like, I want to keep it real. And this is amazing that my friends that have had to see me at the belly room and every awful thing can see this great night happen. But I'm telling you, if I do another, which I hope to do, I am just going to go to another city and have the people invite whoever's a fan and come because leading up to it, it was very stressful. I felt like I was having a huge dinner party. Just because you wanted everyone to confirm? No, or... be- well, because then it was like my husband and I were then arguing like hours before because this person was flaking and w- do they have the seats? And then I also, knowing the flake ability of an LA person, I had... um like just random fans coming and then that was making me feel guilty that oh my god now all these people are coming and the the poor kid from Riverside that's been my fan for two years who's driving out here might not have a seat and it was just like it was that part I I'm like I just want to be the comic and the parking the portal that area sucks you can't park anywhere the the parking and then (laughs) it fell the day before Easter and then all the moms that said they wanted to come were like flaking saying we don't have our baskets done for Easter and I'm like oh shut up (laughs) like I just so it turned out and I did it twice which I highly recommend too um especially when you're someone like me who talks fast and the second time around it was better but um yeah, so if I do it again, uh, don't know that it'll be here. Maybe it will. I can't say that it won't, but I just will treat it differently. I'll be like, fill it up, and that's it. And don't tell it. anyone. Just say, you know, just say, don't tell your friends. Just put a thing to you because you have a lot of fans. Yeah, just, just say, keep the fans. You're right. Come out, and you know where you should tape it? I tell you a great place to tape tell it. Tell me, because I want to do one it's maybe eight, by the end of summer again. It's 818. Which place? And I know the girl who runs it. Who? The uh, Alex Theater in Glendale. You know, we looked at the Alex Theater. And I was a little intimidated by the size of it. Yeah. Maybe I now that I'm in a better, bigger, better place, I believe, and will be by the time I want to do another. I know Joe Coy did it there. It's beautiful theater. I know people had really great tapings there. Um, and that was one of the places that we looked at. But I, I believe it's like 1,400 seats or something. You could fill that. I, I bet you could fill that. That made me a little nervous. The El Portal was good. It was 400, and I did it twice. So I really only needed 800 people. Yeah. So that, but if you have, if you get a thousand out of 1,400, it's still great. Cause right. The, the bal- who cares about the balcony? Right. They the can balcony, close that and, up. And, yeah. And, the, and it's a great. I went to see Martin Short there. It's a great. Oh, theater. I love Martin Short. It's yeah. A great theater. So now, now, when did you start taking the Groundlings class? After about. <sighs> And somewhere around, right around then, when I was like 23, I, and you know, what was interesting is I said, okay, I really, I'd done a little bit of improv at, in high school and in, in, um, in college, this one class. So I loved the improv. I loved being on, you know, working off the top of your head and, and I loved sketch too, loved always watching SNL and all that stuff. So I was like, well, I'd be really interested in doing this too. And so I went to the Groundlings and auditioned. And then I also went to um, the one in Sherman Oaks. Yeah, I know. What is that called? The, the something connection. It's next to Wildfire. LA Connection. Okay. 
And so, Alec, you know, the groundlings was like, okay, you take the first class and blah, 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 blah. You have to get all the way to Sunday show before you really have like a running show. And so I went to the LA Connection and right away they were like, no, you can start doing these shows like within six weeks. You can start doing the Sunday show at two and blah, 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 blah. So I went home to my parents' house in Woodland Hills and I was telling my mom about it. And I go, so I think I'll do the LA Connection because I got to be seen. Like, I got to get an agent ASAP. I am 23. Like, shit's going, falling. Like, I mean, I, I had no clue of like, and really great advice that I did get right around that time because I actually sent my very first stand-up appearance to Omnipop. Yeah, uh, Bruce. Yes, Bruce and exactly. Tom, and Tom Ingenegno. And he literally, somebody, <laughs> I had a pretty good connection. Like, somebody would... Anyway, the guy called me back, okay, Bruce, and he was like, hey, maybe he hadn't seen it. Maybe I just called him. And I go, I mean, it's like a pretty great six-minute tape. I really think you should see it. And he was, you know, and he goes, listen, you really shouldn't have anyone see you for about two years. Two years? I'll be 25. What are you talking about? You know, and I try to tell people that today because with YouTube and all that stuff, there's different mediums. I'm not saying that someone who never leaves their room can't make a million dollars eating chocolate bars in front of a YouTube webcam. God love you. You're, I don't want to take anything from you. But as far as a stand-up goes, it really is important that people don't see you when you're too green or too hacky or too, because that really sticks in your brain. I mean, and, and then you see someone six years later and you're like, oh my God, I had no idea they were that good. But and, you're always thinking of that time that they were like, Doing some Tinder joke that everyone else had done, and you're like, oh, come on. Well, it's funny also, I noticed, because when I did comedy, it was, people had to wait to become a headliner. I mean, right. people, I mean, because it was the old, when I would host, I'd do 20 minutes, when I right. 30 minutes. Finally, when I started, I used to headline, like, the DC clubs, you know. Right, like, yeah. You'd have to do 45, which was scary, because, you know, right. you're in. But that's the same thing, like, with people, when they try to push it out too much. Now, it's like, everyone's like, I'm a headliner, when they've done a show with, like, eight people, and it's like, no, you're not, because when you go on the road... You're gonna show up going, okay, where's the other seven acts? They're gonna go, no, 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 no. You gotta do you gotta do forty five to an hour. And that's the same thing with when people jump. I mean, it seems they jump too quick a lot of times. Well, I even remember one time Chelsea Handler telling me that that like the first time she got booked as a headliner, the next day they're like, The feature's gonna be headlining. Like you can stay the weekend, but like you're just not ready. And um, so yeah, I agree with that, you know, that you and and I think now, if you're really getting booked to be paid, you're going to be, a head, you know, you're going to have to have the chops to be a headliner. But, um, yeah, sometimes people, sometimes I go to a club. I almost rarely bring anyone with me. I like to use the local people. I mean, I basically just say my only restraint is I don't really want someone talking about motherhood and marriage just because that's what I talk about. So I, I kind of, it's so weird. Cause I'm like, Oh my God, my writer must look like so cougary. Cause I'm like, I'd like some, maybe a guy who's like young and single and talks about dating. It's like, but, um, in, in some of the people that I've had, it's like, I will get like a, a, such a good feature then like they're, they are the headliner on the off nights, you know? So I think it's, it's kind of great cause I want it to be the best show for the people that come out. So, um, so sometimes if you are a headline, you'll still feature if it's worth it. If you're opening for someone good, that's right. going to put eyes on you, you know? Um, but yeah, so then when I started, so my mom said, when I said, now mom, I think I'll do the LA connection cause I can get right on to, and she, my mom said, well, why would you, why wouldn't you go with the best? The growlings is the best. And it's like playing tennis. Like you want to be with the best people. And, and I'm not dissing LA connection because I'm sure there's really super talented people there. But being that I was young, it was the best thing for me to go and be with really strong people all the way along. And, you know, and I didn't go. One of the classes I had to redo, I remember I had to redo Intermediate. And the second time I redid it, my teacher was Lisa Kudrow, which was like the best thing ever. I was like, she is me. Like, it's who I want to be. You know, like she even went to Taft. Like she's from right around where I grew up. And. I loved her sense of humor and and I remember um she I remember when she called me to say I've made it to the next level and she's like, No, you you really you totally get it and I'm not worried about you, blah blah blah. And I just I loved it. And um when I've run into her, I've run into her now twice in the last couple of years, once when she was a guest on Chelsea lately and recently we both did this thing for Huffington Post. 
And I like start to shake and cry because she's like, what's wrong? <laughs> I'm like, because it was just, you were so inspiring to me. And it was so, you know, and even how she's lived her life now, like being married for 20 years and raising a son and having a successful career. And I love the comeback. And, you know, I'm just like, it's just some, I just love everything you do. And, and you were so nice and so smart. And I remember when with main company, it works different than like a um, second city or anything like that. Groundlings does in that there's 30 spots in the main company. And if you give up your spot for, for them to move someone from Sunday in, um, you can never do the Friday and Saturday show again. So it's very easy when someone books a show or they go to SNL. But a lot of those people that were at SNL when I was going up wouldn't give up the spot. Like they were just so scared to be like, oh my God, if I lose SNL to think that I can't perform on a Friday and Saturday for 99 people, like it, it's so like encompassing. It's like you think the entire Hollywood is in these 99 seats and everyone's, it's very ancestral. Everyone's dating. There's so much gossiping. I mean, at least that's the way it was when I was there, which I loved. All of it, loved it. Couldn't be so sad when it ended. But also knowing it was like healthy when it ended, you know, because you need to leave the theater. But um, with uh, so with Lisa, I remember sitting there and she goes, yeah, I'm giving up my spot. And I'm like, you are? Why? And she'd been doing guest spots on Mad About You. And um, she goes, well, I got this show and it's about like 20 somethings living in New York and it's going to follow Seinfeld. And. And I just remember thinking in my head, I remember like imagining like 20 somethings like in a subway and I'm like, this is not going to work, Lisa. Like, what are you doing? You're going to give up Friday and Saturday night at the Groundlings? Like pilots get fa fail all the time. And I was like, all right. I mean, if you're sure, like you don't want to wait like a season. <laughs> but yeah, that was kind of the mentality. So then I went through the whole thing and I did Sunday show and because no one was leaving, at that time, like Will Ferrell, everybody still had their spots. Um, and uh, so then they like, you know, one year, okay, we're going to renew you for another six months. We're going to renew you for, finally, I was there for two years. And they're like, in the history of Groundlings, no one has ever gone two and a half years in the Sunday show. And they had one spot available. So as they would say, it was a bloodbath, which sounds crazy in this day and age because we know what a real bloodbath is. But the Groundlings cutting... So there was like eight of us that were cut and then, um, and I was sad for like a day. And then I was like, no, this is the right thing because I, I'm afraid I would be that person that never left, that started teaching the classes, that got resentful, that younger people were, you know, auditioning for SNL and I wasn't, you know, that kind of thing. So I always feel like those are some of the greatest things that can happen to you is being fired. So you, we're out of there, but now, now I know you started writing with the weigh-ins at some yeah, point. Yeah, so then I... I I had started writing on Keenan Ivory Wayne's late night talk show. I literally got it the week before I got cut from the groundlings, which I also think I remember Jennifer Coolidge called me and she goes, well, tonight's the vote. And I just want you to know that you're probably the most mentally healthy person I've ever met through the groundlings. <laughs> she goes, oh, I'm going to vote for you because she's my friend. She goes, but I'm telling you, they know that you have a job and sometimes that makes it easier for them to cut you, you know? And, and I go, but I want to still do it. And she goes, I know, but I'm just letting you know, like just whatever happens, happens. And so when I got cut, like, you know, I'd already started the, sh the job writing on that show. And that was my first writing job. And I also didn't know like how precious that is to get a writer's guild job at 27. And, um, because it was so hard and I felt like I just entered, entered like public school. Like everybody was so mean and for like the first couple of days they liked me. Then I got accused of like stealing an idea and I was like, guy had me crying. I'm like, like we'd all, like we'd all worked on, they said, let's, let's get together early. So we do really well in the pitch meeting with Keenan tomorrow. And it was these two guys and me and I go, okay. So we came up with this idea for the guest to do. And then, um, and then in the meeting, Keenan like asked me directly, like, do you have any ideas for this guest? And I go, yeah, we were talking about it. And, and then I said the idea. Now I'd never been on a staff show, you know, and 
we got back into the room and they just yelled at me and they were like, we have families to feed. How dare you? That was it. You just totally, you know, threw us under the bus and took that. Across. And I was like, I thought I, I'm like, I was in tears. I was like, I called my manager. I'm like, get me the fuck off this show. I'm like, I don't care. I'll just go audition and like go work for my parents in real estate. Like, I don't want this. And my agent was like, my manager was like, no, this is like a really good job. Like, you have to stick it out, you know? And I was like, oh my God. And, um, but ever since then, any time in any meeting throughout Chelsea lately, whatever, I would constantly be like, Chris Frangiola and Jen Kirkman and I were thinking a great idea might be like, I really, really made sure not that they would have cared. We were all so close and, and it was very, very collaborative. The difference between Chelsea lately and, and that late night experience. And I believe any other late night experience is that you go and you write your own jokes and the head writer picks them for the monologue. But our thing is we sat around and we talked about what should the topics be for the round table. And we would come up with the topics and we'd kind of collaboratively come up with, jokey points of view and then that one person would write that topic and then she would pick the jokes and add to them or whatever she always was doing stuff off the top of her head all the time so but then you'd see your then sometimes you'd be watching with everybody and you'd be like that's my joke or we'd know that that was chris's joke and we'd be like hey high five but that'd be it there was no like you know scorekeeping right because it was it was and, and, and good I love comedy that. comes from being a team, you know. Right, that's the I mean, best, one a, a person has, a, yeah, one person has like a funny idea, and 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 three people would piggyback on it, and you take notes, and then you went and wrote it, spent 10, 15 minutes on it, and you'd have the strongest. And even then, maybe it would, she would punch it up, or the the head writer that would clean it all up and put it in one document would maybe cut it or make it shorter or whatever. And so, um, so yeah, so I I preferred that experience to the Keenan one but what happened with the Keenan one is once Keenan ended then years later we we had a little contact back and forth over some other things but then years later is when they were starting to write this movie um that was going to be like a parody of signs because they had done the two scary movies and they wanted a female perspective and so one of the writers that screamed at me that day that then we later on became <laughs> friends um because I remember when I finally won them over. Because they were like, who is this? You know, it was all, half half the writers were black men. The other half were white men. And there was one black woman, Alison Faust, who I'm still friendly, friendly with, who I love. She was very sweet to me. But that was it. And then this white, 27-year-old sorority USC girl from the Valley, who like, come on, you know? And they talk about, you know, being, I didn't know what, you know, government cheese was. I didn't know what the <laughs> hell they were talking about. And they're like, what did you think of good times? And I'm like, I loved it. I was jealous that everybody lived so close by that your friends could be so close by that you could go just next door and hang out with your friend. I was like, where are these projects? Like, why do we live in the project? And they like thought that was like hilarious. But that was really what I thought as a kid. I was like, I want to be in good times. And I go, but I also thought it was really unfair that just because Thelma was a girl, she got her own room and the two boys had to share the living room couch. I thought that was like very sexist and rude, you know? So they were just like, who is this chick? And then I remember one time I was talking about my brother and I have some fucked up siblings. And, um, and I said, uh, I they were like, what's going on with your brother? Or something? I said, well, my brother is, um, you know, he's in jail right now. They're like, why? And I'm like, well, he, um, it was for stocking. He worked at a Home Depot and someone in kitchen supplies said, hello. He got the wrong impression. What can I say? <laughs> like, it was like, and I just said it like that. And they were like, oh my God. And I remember the, the other writer who screamed at me that day that now liked me came in and was like, that was really funny. That's the kind of stuff you should do in your standup. And it was like, oh, okay. Yeah. Nobody has a family like me. Nobody has my, and I, and I, when people ask about comedy and writing it, I'm like, look, I feel like so many young girls right now will go do stand up and it's all I'm a drunk slut, you know, and I, I slept with a homeless person. No, you didn't. OK, it's like write something that's more unique. Like, do you have interesting parents? It, what is your life? work? What is it like to work at the Gap? And who's your annoying manager? Like, Tell me a, a funny story about that that not someone can take. Anyone can write a dating joke. And and that was one of the lessons I learned early on is that I, I wrote, I had this joke about calling back someone that I dated on Star 69. They had hung up the phone. 
and if you press star 69 it would call the latest the last person that called you it would call you back well of course that's just fodder for jokes and everybody had one and i had one but it was unique to my perspective and my story of how it happened and i later saw that that this guy had a star 69 joke he went on after me but he wasn't there to see me perform so i went up to him and i said I just want you to know I have a Star 69 joke too. You didn't see it because I was the MC, but I just didn't want you to think like I saw yours or that if you didn't think you got the same response it, because I touched on the subject. He goes, what is it? I tell him, he goes, oh, it's totally different. Don't worry about it. Then I'm now I'm getting booked at the improv and, and Bud loves me. I did this whole thing about my mother leaving voicemail messages and he, or not voicemail at the time, answering machines. He loved it. And they were like, what could we do with this girl? And, so I guess, and people were like, who is this girl who can freaking pack the room? Because I was like, I'm at the improv now. Like, everybody's got to come. And like all the sorority, and I'd, bring, and I'd bring a great crowd. And I still do. I bring a crowd that like buys the better alcohol, that shows up on time, buys the food. They have jobs. They're like happy. They're respectful. It's a good, a Heather McDonald crowd is a good, nice crowd that clubs love. Because it's like, they, they plan girl nights and mom nights and way in advance and like so hey they were so people so all of a sudden my manager called me and she goes hey um the improv got some complaints that you've been stealing people's material and I was like I mean blown away like I've never even cheated on a spelling test like I was like are you kidding me like and and I was like, I have the notebooks. I, do you want me to show you how the how it how I got from here to here to here? Like I did not. And it was that guy who told everybody I'd stole his Star Sixty Nine joke, and all these people were getting like resentful. And I got banned for like several years. See, that's so I, I hate that shit because it's like, and the Star Sixty Nine, it, it is such a parallel exactly. thinking. And it, but if you, it's exactly what you said. If you do something differently, I mean, everyone, you know, used to do it. I've fallen and I can't get up. But if somebody right. did it differently, it's called a topic. I mean, if I, yes. I I used to do obscure references. So if someone's doing a, you know, a James Spader right hand impression after Pretty in Pink, they're going to say, okay, they stole it from me. Right. But if they're doing, let's say, a James Spader impression in the blacklist, which I don't do, but I'm right. saying, but people, that's something that people will do. I mean, it's like someone saying, oh, he stole my Christopher Walken. Well, no, everybody does that. Right. And so no, that's the thing. Exactly. And so I think that, no, I mean, who doesn't do marriage and kids stuff? Who doesn't do dating stuff? Is of course, um, or even, or even if you want to talk about a show, you know, a TV show, it's like, yeah, everyone's perspective is, it's not, it's very rare. And even when I, even when people post these things and accuse some of an, of it, I'm still like, I don't know if that was totally stolen. Like I'm, you know, because, but I, what that taught me is, I was like, I'm talking about things that nobody else. So when something happens with my kids or my family, you know, and, and that is harder because when you do a more general thing, it does sometimes get the biggest laugh. But, but then when you get to a level where your audience kind of is coming and they know you, then you really can, can really speak to them like a friend who's crying laughing because you know, you know, you know, the Louis CK point of view and his cadence and everything. So it's like he can get, you know, versus when someone's coming on stage and everyone's like, well, who's this chick or who's this guy? You know, you really almost have to work a little harder to get them right at the top so that they get who you are. So the rest of the joke. But like it was interesting because I had these my friend brought her nanny and her boyfriend to my show in Tampa Improv and we went after and these kids had never gone to a live stand up show. They'd never even seen stand up. They were very nice and complimentary. And the, the boyfriend said, I almost want to come back to see you tomorrow now because. I think I'll laugh at even the first part of your act more now that I know you after watching you a whole hour. And that's always, that's what's so great about doing more time too when you get to be a comic is that you have someone, when people say, even now, which I don't do this anymore, but at least a few years ago, maybe, a, you know, eight years ago or something, they, I still had managers that were like, um, hey, they want to see you for this festival. Or they want to, you got, can you do your four minute, you know, for the Tonight Show or whatever. And that kind of stuff stresses me out so much. Here I have hours of material and how do I pick the four minutes and how do I conduct it perfectly? And then when you're going to audition, it's like it's so much of it is the night and the crowd and where you get placed. And 
you know, and you have to just tell them, look, no one's going to be laughing. Just do the material that you think would work on TV. And but oh, my God, I hate that. I am you know, I'd rather go do stand up for 10,000 strangers in a different state than come up with four minutes and go do it at some spot in L.A. with all agents crossed arms and right being a-holes like I just don't it's like life's too short I don't want to do that it's the worst some people do really well at that or like contests you know when they'd be comedy contests well, what oh. it is also is you have to sit there and I, I agree with you when you have you do a longer set you find yourself you relax yeah when you're doing four minutes you're you like, have to kill right away yeah you have to kill right away I don't even like that joke but I can get four laughs exactly in a minute and then you sit there and your timing's all off because you don't tell the joke like that and right I, and so that's what's always it's like four and you sit there and you go how can anyone do four minutes? and of course there's some people who only have four minutes and that's fine They're right newer. but when you sit there and go especially like you're doing hour sets how do you do four minutes that's like sitting there saying okay i'm gonna go see springsteen do do two songs bruce and yeah. they, they can't be the long ones do ones off you know like your later albums and right. it's the same thing now i gotta ask you now yes. now you when you started being on Chelsea, yes, did you ever think that would affect your career the way it did? Because that just blew up a lot of comics. It blew her up, and I wasn't. I, I was familiar with her books before I yes. watched her, and I loved her books. I mean, I watched her Comedy Central special, and I loved it. And her half hour, you mean? Yeah, uh -huh. the first one. And I was like, okay, you know. And the thing is, for you, did you did you ever think that you're? I mean, you had this. That that had a huge following, and people really loved comedy, and like you and Jen Kirkman and all of you yes. guys have really going on you know from that did you did any of you think that it was like that show would have such an impact i mean i i saw i actually took a break from stand-up not really necessarily consciously but right after i got married um i got a deal at cbs i sold a show idea based on like my family and me and my parents being realtors and being this girl and my manager was like, hey, I don't really want you out doing stand-up while this deal is going. Because if you're not that strong, it could be bad, which is horrible advice. So then I kind of didn't do it for a while. Then the deal died. And then I started to do it again. And now I was married and I felt like inauthentic doing my older dating stuff. So I was like trying to write some new stuff, but I never had the regularity. I never was like getting two spots a week at the improv or something. So it meant calling these people, getting the crowd. And then I also felt like, I felt like Catholic guilt about how could I invite people to my stand-up show when I didn't invite them to my wedding? Like I just was like, literally, I couldn't take it. And I lived all the way in Woodland Hills and I just kind of was like, screw it. And I kind of, I stopped doing it. Then I had a couple kids. And in the meantime, I, I wrote after that signs movie that didn't go, they already, the Wayne's brother already had um, white chicks had sold the idea of white chicks and we're going to start to write the script. And so I collaborated, collaborated with them on that. And so, you know, and got to be in the movie. And then I had like a, a couple pilots that didn't go. And I had the lyricist lounge show and I had all these other things that even though I was having kids, some, some years I wouldn't make the SAG insurance. Other years I would like it was, I was still in it, but I wasn't doing stand up. And then I, then last comic standing came on the air. And it made me really miss stand-up. And I was like, I think I'd like to do stand-up again. And right when I said this, I, I had a friend call me, Lisa Sunstead, who, again, if you want to do stand-up and if you're a woman, you should contact her, a pretty funny woman, because she does what I say. She gets girls together. She does shows together. The girls make friends. And it's just a great, safe place to start doing stand-up. So anyway, but she wasn't teaching at the time, but she was putting together shows. And... All of a sudden, she calls me out of the blue. She goes, you know, I've been thinking about you. I can't believe you quit stand-up. You were like one of the best ones I ever had. And I'm like, did I quit? And I looked. I'm like, oh, my God, it's really been like seven years. And I said, it's so weird that you called. I've been thinking about it. I've been jotting down like new ideas about being a mom, being married. And um, and she goes, well, you want to do my show in August at the Improv? And I was like, okay. And then it was exactly like when I had started. Now I have a deadline. I had not gotten up in seven years. I invited all my friends that used to come in the past. I wrote a whole new act and I literally practiced it on the phone with friends like my sister, Ian Edwards, I called. He's a really funny comic. He writes on Blackish now, but he worked on Keenan and Lyricist Lounge with me. And so I was like, went over and I kind of like, and I really practiced. I remember I took like a relaxing bath that day. I like practiced saying it so many times. I hadn't been on stage in so long. And I did that show and Chelsea was on the show 
And she's like, oh, good to see you again. Because you know, we used to see each other on like auditions and things. And um, and I said, you know, and uh, I don't know if her, for her, her Chelsea Handling show may have just started, like the once a week show. And that was August of 2006 is when I started. So I started doing it again. I had like a two, couple shows a month. I started doing it. And then Lisa goes, Chelsea is going to do a show every night now on E! And it's it's starting. And she's looking for writers. And I said, oh, my God, I want, I I got to get a real job in the business. Otherwise, I'm I'm going to age out. I'm just, it's going to be too hard to get back into it, which is another thing that stay-at-home moms don't want to hear, but I totally believe it's true. So I was like, okay. And um, so I emailed her and and she's like, oh, okay, this is the kind of stuff to put together. And I knew her point of view from her show and from everything. So I, you know, I was like, God, if I can write for a black man, I can write for a, you know, a cute drunk blonde, you know, like this is, I know her point of view. So I wrote all this stuff and I met her, the executive producer and then I got the call and they're like, okay, it's going to be for 13 weeks. And the pay was pretty decent. It wasn't writer's guild, but it was a very good like weekly paycheck at the time for me. And um, I was like a little reluctant because it meant like having a full-time nanny for my 18 month old and my other son was still in preschool. And I was like, oh my God. And I remember I called my friend. I go, I don't know if I should take this job. The boys are so little. And she goes, you take that job. She goes, you're not. And one day you're going to come home and they're going to be like 10 and they're not going to look up from their Xbox. And you're going to go, why the hell did I take that Chelsea Handler job? And it was like the best advice. They do look up from their Xbox, but Hey, it's true. It's like, I, I, I so don't regret that obviously at all, but I did think, well, the show will probably go for 13 weeks. Then I'll probably get canceled like every other like E cable type show, but at least it might lead to something else. It's a fresh thing on my resume. It gets me going. So then as we were preparing for six weeks to do the show, um, there was never like the intention was never to put the writers on air. And then and then I, I but I asked, I was like, I want to be on the round table and I can do, you know, and I, I like I I made myself available and wanting to do it. And then since they didn't know what the show was, then they were kind of like oh, we could film a little thing of Heather Drew, Drew, doing Drew Barrymore because the story about Drew came out. And then, and we were really kind of, we didn't really know what the show was. And in the beginning, it was only her and one comic and two, one entertainment reporter and then like one freak. We called it like stunt casting. We'd have like Bai Ling or some weirdo. We got rid of that person because they would throw off the conversation. Then we got two comics and like the Juliana Ranzik. Then we kind of decided the Juliana Ranzik type, not necessarily her, they would try to be funny in adding because we just said add add information to the story, but they they wanted to be funny too because they're around these other funny people. So we got rid of the entertainment person, and then once we had three comics, then it became like, oh my god, and it, and and she, you know, got the people that she knew to be on it, and then so she was much more comfortable with her friends. And then as we were choosing writers, as we went along, we were specifically looking for like comics and writers that could also be in sketches. And then it became this thing where we could all be on the air and write for very little money. Like for what we were doing on SNL would have been five times what they were paying us. But we were like, of course we'll be on TV for $200 or whatever, you know? And, um, and so it was great. It really, it really worked out for everybody. And, uh, you know, and that, like everything, then there were times where it got weird, you know, because now we were getting successful in our own right, yet it wasn't necessarily reflecting in our paychecks around the show. Um, and so some people would leave, you know, and you had, and some people it was cool if you left and you could still be on the round table. And for other people, it, that rule didn't apply and you were like banned. So it was very, it was very, it got very, as fun as it was, and it was great. It was kind of like a hard situation, and um, and and then she obviously and people watching it, she stopped enjoying it, and that's why she quit, and but, that's what happened. Yeah, but for you, did you notice that once you started doing that show, because you started doing stand up again, yes. your crowd, you started getting a bigger crowd. Oh my god, it was great. Well, the greatest thing is that she asked me to open for her, and when I opened for her for the first time, Ted who was her boyfriend and the president of E at the time, he was like, oh, I wish you didn't have the kids and the family. We'd have you open for Chelsea every week. It's so great because you're on the show. 
and because you have the same per, like the same type of comedy, but I'm talking about different stuff. You're, you're exact opposites. You're yeah, and the mom about- and blah blah blah, and then she comes in and like really drives it home, and she can be dirtier and everything. And I was like, and you know, so it was. Um, and I said, I can, I can do every show. Like my husband was so supportive. He never was like, don't do this. Um, and I almost, I mean, I didn't do everyone, but I, I did as many as I could. Like I'd look at the list and I'd be like, go to the, her assistant and be like, ask if I can do this one, this one, this one. And it was so great because it absolutely propelled me into being a headliner because I had the following now and I had the time. And, and then I took advantage of that opportunity to get a book deal. And then that book did well. And I was like, if that book does well, I'm definitely gonna have to write another. And, you know, it's always when you're so busy that the things come in. I would have loved to have been like writing three hours a day when my child was napping and I had nothing going on. And I was, you know, like, but now I was like, oh my God. Um, But no, the opportunities that she gave comics and myself were amazing. I'm forever grateful. And I, I do miss it. I mean, when people say, I miss you on Chelsea, I miss Chelsea, I miss Chelsea. It's like, yeah, because she's doing a whole nother show on Netflix and it's with different people and we're all doing different stuff. And, but I think, um, I think that was like brave of her and I think it's cool and I'm excited to watch it. And, and by her doing that, I was like, thank you because I would have never quit. And I need to, you need to do different stuff. You know, it's like, you're going to be the soap star that's going to be on for 30 years. It's a great job. But you, you don't get, want to quit it because you're on soaps for 30 years, but do you want to, or do you want to like try and do something else? And I, I did kind of think like, I definitely, there was no way I could, where I could go on the show. In fact, I used to be on the show more in the beginning and the more popular I got, the more they were like, well, let's give other people a chance. So it was almost like my husband was like, it's almost like when you become a salesperson and you kill it. And then they're like, we're going to cut your territory in half. It's like, it was, we, so that part, I was like, I don't understand why, you know, I'm not on as much. And then if I asked to be on, can I be on like I used to be there? Like you're being greedy, you know? And I, and I understood that too, because I was really a writer. So it was just that part of it was a little bit difficult. Um, But I loved doing the show and it was fun and we laughed every day and I'm friends with everybody and it's great. It's good. Now tell me about your podcast. So my podcast, I started doing the podcast six months ago and, um, and it was one of those things where I sort of reluctantly did like, I guess in my career, it's time for a podcast. Like, like who doesn't have one, Heather? Get off your ass. And, but I, um, so I didn't really know. And I have to say, it is like the most joyful thing I've ever done. Like, I absolutely love doing it. I do it at Podcast One. Um, when I met with the producer for the first time, he's like, what should we call it? And he's like, is there an expression that you use? And I go, well, I kind of say juicy scoop a lot. Like, do you have any juicy scoop? What happened at the pool party? Like, you got any juicy scoop? So then we kind of created the show where it's just like, I, and one of the things I loved at Chelsea lately that other people didn't adore as much as I did is we'd get all the magazine and, you know, I'd go on all the gossipy websites and I would love to like read all the magazines and make fun of them or I'd read like conflicting stories and I would kind of say, this is what I think. I do think Sandra Bullock's boyfriend is okay, even though Star says he's the worst thing ever because I've done the research on all the magazines. And yes, he had a DUI, but it was 12 years ago. He's sober. He's a babe. He's taking pictures of the new uh, adopted black kids. Like it's it's a match made in heaven. Go ahead, Sandra. So like, and then I like to interview people and I kind of do hot topics sometimes by myself, like Wendy Williams-ish, you know, because I, I didn't want to like depend on a co-host. And um, and I just like love it. And when I get people writing me saying like, I wish you did it more than one a week, one a week. And I, I mean, I really feel like I ho- obviously I hope it becomes something else. But in the meantime, I, I love that every week I'm doing something. The discipline of doing something every week is like really satisfying and joyful. And then when I hear it back, um kind of fall in love with myself again <laughs> i'm like pleasantly surprised because i was afraid i thought oh my god i'm gonna listen to my voice i'm gonna hate myself and even though i say like and i oftentimes swallow too loudly i i think i give a good show well no i think and we're, we're all conscious about that like me when i listen to my voice i stammer a little bit 
I know that. My mom used to call me mushmouth when I was little because I talk fast. And when I get excited, right. that's like anything. If you're creative, when you get excited, yes. your tempo speeds up and, and your mind starts thinking. And you're saying, I want to I say this, but you're going, bleh, 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 you know, you're not right. speeding up. So I think, you know, it's, it's, I mean, I never listen to my show. People sit there and go, oh, man, you know, we like your show. And, you know, and you, you have a radio voice. And I go, I, I don't listen to it. They go, How you know, do I-, I was doing, I interviewed Brandy Glanville, who's a Real Housewife yesterday. And she has a podcast, too. And she goes, I don't listen back. And I said, oh, I do because my producer sends it to me the day before and I, I really like to listen to it. And, and sometimes I, I will say cut something or could you tighten this part up? He's a really good producer and editor. So, and sometimes I'm like, oh, I guess you found that part boring. <laughs> See, I don't, I don't edit. I just do straight hour. I don't, yeah. Well, I don't... he, he edits a little for me, which I like, but I, um, I'm not smart enough to figure that stuff out on a computer. <laughs> well, you do it yourself. I have like a person right. that, and I kind of like having one other person's perspective, you know? Um, but, uh, or he'll switch something around or I'll say, you know, maybe do the interview with top because the other stuff wasn't as interesting, but, um, no. And I really, and I love how much radio and podcasts are like such a back being part of our lives that I don't think really were like a decade ago and how much people love listening to it when they're working out or, you know, on a commute or whatever. And so I really see the value in it and I love it too. I listen to talk and serious and all that all the time in my car now, much less than music, really. We have a few minutes left. Yes. Okay. Now, now it's on podcast one. Podcast one, Juicy Scoop with Heather McDonald. You can find it on iTunes as well. You can get, there's an icon, on a podcast icon on every iPhone that you can sign up there. Um, my website is heathermcdonald.net. I have live shows, tons in 2016. I'm going to be at the Comedy Works South in January, um, as well as Toledo, Ohio in January. I'm going to be at the Aspen Laugh Festival in February, Nashville, Chicago on on February 14th. I'm doing a special show one night at the Park West Theater, which is kind of a big deal because I normally do clubs. I don't normally do a theater show. So please spread the word. I've got to fill that place up. And um, and my Instagram and, and Twitter is at Heather McDonald. And I love to do short original videos all the time and YouTube and all that stuff. So check it out. And uh, that's it. Do you enjoy the road? Because, I mean, you're going at a, it's not like you're not going from club to club. You're going at a different level now as a headliner. Yes. But, I mean, do you enjoy going on the road? or, or I do it... sometimes, and sometimes I don't. Sometimes I really dread it as I'm packing. But it's like working out. I'm so happy once I do it. And and some weekends are great. I, ha- I actually am, I have a lot of friends, and I seriously book some of the gigs around where people live because I don't really like being alone. But then sometimes a whole weekend where I don't leave my room all weekend except to go to stand-up is actually really nice too. So, um, and I, and it's something that, you know, that I'm so grateful I can do because in between TV shows and stuff, I can make, you know, good money every month. And so I appreciate that a lot. But yeah, it gets exhausting. You get sick of your voice. You get sick of your act. So I'm always trying to change it. Um, but every weekend is different, you know, and there's some that are, yeah, there's some places that are depressing. Like, you know, I love it when I'm in what I like to call like a cute city and I can go out and there's a Starbucks right there and it's cute. And other times it's like very dismal and depressing. And, you know, sometimes it's, it's not totally full and then I'm like, am I ever going to work again? And other times I'm packed, but you know what I mean? It's like every time is different. So I want to thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me. Now do you tweet? Yes, absolutely. It's at Heather McDonald on Twitter and Instagram, and Facebook is Heather McDonald Comedy. So people follow her. Go to her website. It's great. It's Heather McDonald. I have it up right here on my on my, my dot uh, net yeah, dot net. See, I'm CooperTalk.net. And go yes. to my website, CooperTalk.net. I have uh, God, I have over 450 episodes up there. So go to CooperTalk.net. Also, email me Cooper CooperTalk.net because I'll get back to you. And uh, also, if you have an Android tablet or phone, go to the Google Play Store. There's a Cooper Talk app. But for some reason, you have to type in one word, Cooper Talk. I just can't find it. But Cooper slash or space dot, uh, talk, you can't find it. So go get that. It's my app. You can listen to my show on the phone. It has everything. Also, keep listening. Next week, I have uh, Sharon Lawrence and I have Ed Asner. And that's a big thing. I have Ed Asner coming in studio, which he's a legend. And don't forget, it's Christmas time. So go to my website, stopthesalt.com. As you know, I does health problems. And you can get my cookbook. 
It's a uh, it's a 120 low sodium recipe cooking for one. You can get it at uh, Netflix. I mean, you can get it at uh, Amazon or BarnesandNoble.com. But if you get it from StopTheSalt.com, I will sign it for you, and I make more money. And I think it's all about doing that. So don't forget, follow her on Twitter. Follow me on Twitter at CooperTalk. Instagram, I'm CooperTalk1. Do that and check out her podcast and check out and you're a net. Don't you hate when you're in a net? You know, someone with .com would wanted like $10,000 for it. And I said, tough. I don't well, care. Screw them. So anyway, check her out. <laughs> check coopertalk.net out. Remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, keep listening. We have a whole new year coming up and that's about it. Have a good day and I'll talk to you soon.